This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I N A C I T Y L I K E Y O U R S dot C O M. For links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Deborah tells the story of her life of service to the less fortunate and how it has shaped her life and artistic career. Then Don talks about her health, modeling, and acting career. Here are their stories. My name is Deborah Allen. I'm in Shreveport, Louisiana. And um, I want to talk first about my great-grandmother, who was the biggest influence on my life as far as who I became as an adult. Uh, Her name was Ada Demery Cleveland, and we called her Muddy. She was probably the most inclusive person I ever met. She didn't have a judgmental bone in her body. And she was 15 when she married my great-grandfather, who was 30. Of course, you don't hear that anymore. But she once told me that she didn't even know where babies came from on her wedding day. She was so young. She hired a black maid who was the same age as her once she uh, started having children. They were the best of friends, and her name was Mimi. And you, you always saw Mimi in the family portraits. They were very close. About the time she was 30, she went to work outside the home as a seamstress and worked her way up as the manager of the workroom of a high-end interior design friend and piper here locally. And it was about 1935 that Social Security became enacted, and she made sure that Mimi would have retirement and paid her Social Security taxes, of course, which was unheard of at that time in our country. And she was a creative. She made all my Easter and Christmas dresses But she also had interior design in her home was top-notch. I never heard the N-word come out of her mouth once. It was forbidden word. Best friends, Muddy and Mimi, were in their late 80s. They would cook in the morning and clean, and then they'd make their lunches together and sit down the rest of the afternoon and watch their soap operas. It just wasn't something you saw happen in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And their friendship was one that broke all the rules for the time during the Jim Crow era. And it was my formative years watching this beautiful relationship. But I didn't know that. You know, it wasn't until I grew up and I learned about racism. But that was what my little world was. My mother was a teen when she had me. She was married, but she was divorced after 19 and single until I was about four. 
I spent my week and weekends going from my grandmother and grandfather's house during the week while my mom worked to Muddy's house on the weekends. My mom married my stepdad who adopted me because I never knew my real father. His mother took me in as her own and once they were married I spent a lot of time with them seeing they lived right behind us on the, on the street behind us. I went from an environment that was very inclusive to one that was very prejudiced. I heard the N-word for the first time and often. I heard and saw hatred for black people, but I knew early on the difference, and I never accepted their way of thinking. Race was just one factor, and I got a lot of spankers for being defiant and questioning what I saw. There was an incident when we went to pick up my grandmother from the um, from the railroad station and back then the, the the restrooms were segregated there were white restrooms and black restrooms and I was pretty young I was about four or five before I started school and I told my mom I needed to go and she was within the, within eyes view and she says there it is go over there and I looked at the lady picture on the bathroom so I walked in and used that bathroom when I came out she saw that I had gone into the the black bathroom and she spanked me for it so as I was getting a spanking, I watched these little black girls go in. I was so scared for them that they were going to get a spanking too because I was just too young to put together what race was all about. So being brought up in that environment, as a teen, I really retreated to music and art as an escape. I learned to play the guitar at 12 and played in church. I watched the counterculture on the news every night and the protests of Vietnam War. The music I taught myself was anti-war songs like Crosby, Stills and Nash, Donovan, and the music of Woodstock. I became anti-war and started writing political prisoners whose addresses I found in the back of underground press magazines. One time when the letters came back, I guess the guy had been released or just I just wrote down the wrong address. My father intercepted it and I ended up being uh, grounded for a week for writing these political prisoners. Eventually I stum stumbled on the glam rock scene in high school and I became obsessed with Mark Bowen and T-Rex who were pretty boys in makeup and glitter, upbeat music and happy lyrics. They were a profound influence on me. Bowie soon followed with Ziggy Stardust and the androgyny and the message was okay to love everyone no matter their gender. I recognized in myself that I was attracted to people no matter how they identified sexually. My art, my music, my sexual orientation was completely solidified by the time I was 17. Though the next 10 years were spent having children and raising them the best I knew how, I started designing clothes and painting again once my boys were in school. I was encouraged to paint something and entered it into a national exhibit which was curated by Henry Rand, the curator of the Smithsonian. I was in complete shock when I got the notice my piece Private Life had been accepted. It was done in this Russian style, comic book style, and sold the night of the opening. Then Guts Media was born when I started designing clothes. I participated in a couple of local fashion shows and so drag for local drag queens. It was a time when men couldn't just walk into a clothing store and buy off the rack, so they came to me. 
Those things, among others, gave me local and national recognition as an artist and designer. I was interviewed locally and nationally, and when a reporter approached me at the Dallas Apparel Mart as an up-and-coming Southern designer for Women's Wear Daily, where I had sold my one-of-a-kind pieces to stores throughout the South, it was during that time that I found myself remembering that my great-grandmother and her influence on me to design. Hopefully I had made her proud. There's a lot of stress in my marriage, and I found myself a single mom at four, when at 30, living in a one-bedroom apartment with four little ones. I was finishing up beauty school so I could have a way to support my kids. It was the late 80s and 90s when I went to work as a hairstylist. I worked at Ultimate Appearances, which put me in the past of amazing, amazing artists like Robert Burton, Dan McIntyre, and Barton Gross. I also met local artists like Louis Combat, Michael Moore, David Cooper, Gary Cathy, and Joe DeSantis, and others who were part of this artist collective called Artist Transit. I was invited to join the group where I painted and made clothes and reunited with the LGBT community. The late 80s and early 90s, we started hearing about this disease called GRID. Within a year or so, the name had been changed to AIDS, and I remember my friends and I afraid to go sit on toilets in gay bar bathrooms because there was no information on transmission. The very first person in my circle to contract HIV was John David. He lost so much weight in a short time. With no information on how it was transmitted, I stopped taking my kids to his house on Sunday to pool parties out of fear and, and lost contact with him. I'll never forget, forget the guilt and shame I had once we learned the real science behind it and how you cannot contract HIV through casual contact. I made a promise to his memory I would always fight the stigma and rally for a cure. Act Up Shreveport was formed by three men who had grown up here but moved away to a larger city. It was Chuck Selber, Gary Cathy, and Joe DeSantis. Chuck and Gary had been part of the New York City-based nonprofit, community-based AIDS service organization. The end result was to try to end the AIDS epidemic. It was there that Larry Kramer formed ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Joe lived in the other half of the duplex where I lived. He came home and show, shared with, with me what had happened in the meeting to form a local chapter of ACT UP in Shreveport and to fight for a cure and against stigma. So we went into clubs and recu recruited others and the very first ACT UP Shreveport meeting was held in my apartment that I shared with Buddy Williamson. The membership grew quickly to include people living with AIDS or family members and friends. Some of the actions we were part of included several actions against the public hospital LSU Medical Center which was formerly known as the Confederate Memorial Hospital for their refusal to take on drug trials, provide service to those with HIV, and the simple basic services. Some of the actions that we took part of include several actions against the public hospital, LSU Medical Center, formerly known as the Confederate Memorial Hospital, for their refusal to take on drug trials, provide services to those with HIV and AIDS and simple basic services like entering the room where the patient was. 
They would do things like open the door and push the food trays in or refuse to take out the dirty bedding or clean the bathrooms. The simplest OSHA regulations would have protected them, but there wasn't even any hospital education to the staff. Many times we would be back in front of the TV cameras making an example of the hospital conditions. Many of the gay community also stood up against us for making a stand because it reflected badly on them, or so they, they thought. It was Dr. Mark Spurlock, one of the doctors who treated those with HIV, who had been re appointed to the Human Relations Commission. He would often play the good cop, bad cop with them, saying, I can get act up to back off if you'll do this or do that. It was during this time that he wrote a million-dollar grant that was awarded to start the Philadelphia Center. Many of the ACT-UP members went to, on to work within the system there. I was first hired as an outreach worker and a prevention specialist. Part of my duties was HIV testing and counseling. My most vivid memories were giving positive results. And watching that person go numb in shock or angry, you just never knew what the action was going to be. So many times I could tell they weren't hearing me as I was giving them follow-up resources that would address their health issues. And lots of times they would have dual diagnosis, so it was even hard to follow up with the services they needed. They would just disappear. I had found my calling. It was just like my whole life had brought me to this place. I worked hard on my degree in social work and worked part-time as a hairstylist and a bartender. Without my mom and sister helping me and my kids, I would have never graduated to get that bachelor's degree. It was then I was hired as a case manager who worked directly with HIV clients, and it was hard. Most positive diagnosis ended in death after six months to a year. I went to nearly 50 funerals, mostly young people who had grown up here and I had known. I stayed there for 10 years. I believe it was burnout, PTSD I dealt with for years after that. One of the examples that I tell people was I had um, gotten, a, one of the clients was a 15-year-old girl and she found out that she was uh, diagnosed when she had a baby who, who tested positive for AIDS. She had no clue that she had um, been exposed or anything and seeing she was full-blown that means she had contracted when she was like five years old and there's story after story like that there was a 12 year old boy I helped go pick out the casket to his mom's funeral and then put him on a bus to live up north with relatives he had never met the burnout was bad I self-medicated for years the strangest things would trigger me and I regret mostly being emotionally distant to those I love during that time. So I left the Philadelphia Center and I spent a few years working as a publicist musician. I met some of the most celebrated rockers out there. I never thought I would one day return with such an emotional crisis-based career ever again. But I did go back to work at the Philadelphia Center in 2003 and left in 2008 after injury on the job. Since then, I spent seven years working with ACLU of Louisiana, mostly dealing with incarceration issues. I became deeply involved with solitary confinement issues. In the Angola 3, 
and worked until the last remaining Angola 3 member, Albert Woodfox, was released on his birthday four years ago. I've also worked with the Southern Poverty Law Center, organizing around the adjusted reinvestment policies to bring Louisiana down from the state that incarcerates the most in the world to number two. And then I took another break. So what am I doing now? <laughs> well, I've retired from activism, being on the front lines. Still support causes that are important to me. I was recently approached by StoryCourse to organize the Stonewall Outlaw project in our area of people, LGBT people born before 1969. The interviews that we've done will be housed in the Library of Congress. See, I'm an animal foster mom, thankfully. My, phone, my home is big enough, it has lots of space to accommodate it. I care for one of my sons who's bipolar and schizoaffected. And more recently, my stepson, who's autistic, has come to live with me. And with my business partner, I own Demery and Pettisclaw Consultants and run a civil rights nonprofit. But I do make myself available to those who need me and am enjoying the quiet life, which includes traveling. And that's where I'm at now. You, I want to go back a little bit to your days of uh, designing clothing. I know that something that really inspired you was finding bolts of fabric that belonged to your grandmother. Uh, the, I believe it right. was brocade. That, oh, yeah. What? She had bolts of brocade up in the attic. So that and was it, big. It, Go ahead. Oh, yeah. And it, it was the 80s, and, and everybody had the big hair and the big shoulder pads and the brocade, and it was just like I, I had found, you know, gold or something, you know. And, and I, that's what... I designed most of was the big, big-shouldered brocade jackets. And when you were, you did later on, you did hair for a long time. I remember you working at Ultimate Appearances and knowing right. Dan McIntyre, and uh, you also knew Mark Rawls at the time, who right. uh, who was a nationally known artist. Right. We became really good friends. He had walked in the salon one day and needed a haircut, and we just immediately clicked. You know, and um, he was a really amazing influence as far as his art. He he came back home. He um, had a studio behind his house, and I would sit out there and watch him as he made his sculptures and, and painted. And it, it was just amazing time when he came back home. Yeah, you were uh, fortunate to meet so many interesting people. Uh, it seems like everybody in your life was an artist or musician or something creative, and that you know I think that's really special. And I know a lot of that rubbed off on you. Oh, yeah, because when you have that kind of creativity around you all the time, you're inspired. So you do things that you would never have dreamt of, you know. And I, I really have been lucky. Even when I left the Philadelphia Center and I became a publicist, I was working for big bands like Poison and, and Pantera and all these amazing people. Yeah, you knew Daryl Dimebag, didn't you? Yes, I'm, I was good friends with Daryl Dimebag, um, Ricky Rocket from Poison. We became friends. Um, that was through the internet, so I did some internet work for the, for his uh, his individual project away from Poison. Almost got him and Mark Boland's son, Roland Boland, together to, on a song. I don't know, I don't think that ever happened, but we were almost there because <laughs> I'm still friends with Mark Boland's son, Roland Boland. One of the perks of you growing up and, and knowing so many creative people was that your children knew creative people as well. 
and uh, you have a son, Micah, who is a very successful tattooist, who's known nationally for his right. work. Uh, and I'm sure you're very proud of that. Micah is the artist I wish I had been, you know. But the thing he gets he gets from me, I think, is his ability to not care what people think. And I was so much like that when I was his age, you know. I've mellowed out a lot, you know, now, but he... He has that drive and that force and in, in, in to be able to create, you know, unapologetically. I know with your ACLU uh, work, you became friends with uh, Albert Woodfox. Why don't you tell us a little right. bit about him? Um, that's an interesting story. I, with the ACLU, we, I, did a, I worked with uh, Jackie Sumel, who was an artist, and she made a point to leave California and move to New Orleans so she'd be close to Herman Wallace, which was also one of the Angola three. And I, that's how I got connected, through Jackie Samel. And there's a documentary, Herman's House. Well, we brought the documentary here, and I met Robert King, who's the third person in Angola three, and he was one of our panelists when I showed it in Shreveport. Through that I met people that were his, that Albert's supporters, because Albert was housed up here in, in um, North Louisiana, and the rest of them were housed in Angola or South Louisiana. And that was by design so that the, the attorneys would have a hard time getting to him, because they were, they were bringing the trials back. I think Albert went to trial three times for his, you know, his case. But... Jackie goes, I need you to start, you know, writing Albert. You're right here beside him, you know, and, and, and calling him. And him well, he called me. And when Jackie and others would come up to visit, they would stop and stay with me, and then they'd go over to see Albert the next day over in Monroe. And um, that's how I got connected to Albert. So we had been talking and, and writing each other for years before he was released. And so when he was released... The, it was about three weeks after he was released. I finally had the opportunity to go actually sit in front of him and touch him. You know, here's my friend. Uh, you know, I've cried tears with him. You know, I've tried to be strong with him, you know, on the phone calls. And um, Daniel, my son, and I went down there. And we, I met him for the first time then. And that was four years ago. So that's how we became close is because of proximity of him being it weighed here and then and then I was so close he, they would wouldn't allow him but 10 people on his visit list so I, they, that was filled with attorneys and and people he'd known for a long time so I never got to see him while he was incarcerated here so we're still very good friends I go down there on his birthdays and I go I see him three or four times a year but he's his book Solitary is is one of the top sellers, and uh, he travels the world with it now. Yeah, I understand that uh, your son Daniel they are chess buddies. Right, and and that was it. He gotten out of um, prison. Daniel brings a chess board, right, and he goes, "You know how to play?" He goes, "Sure, I do." And it, Daniel looked up at me about halfway through the game, like, "Oh hell," you know, he goes. For, it was a challenge. It, it, it was, yeah. And the man had been in solitary confinement for 43 years. It was about to beat Daniel, who's also a chess master, 
you know, and he goes, I haven't played in 20 years. And, and Daniel goes, don't, don't kick my butt. <laughs> Daniel eventually won that game, but you know, it was, it was pork form. The man, how he kept his sanity is a miracle. And he says the reason why he's a, he never let them break him. And that every time I would, you know, hang up with him, he would go, Deb, I'm not going to let them break me. And he just kept that close and thought it all the time. And that's why he's, you know, so mentally strong, I guess. But, he, you know, it, a lot of people break after a week in solitary. We're talking 43 years alone. Uh, so. Yeah. I'm so interested in your family, uh, you know, with your children. I know you're a huge family person, and you have quite a few uh, grandkids now. Yeah. But uh, your sons, uh, Daniel, Micah, and Aaron, they all are creative, and so is your daughter. Actually, she's a photographer and quite a quite a good photographer. Right. Right. Aaron and Daniel are very good artists as well, but they never do their art. Daniel's is incredible. It's it's very abstract and beautiful, and the colors he uses, you know. But they don't they don't they don't make a living at it like Micah does, you know. Which is which is how many people get to make a really good living doing art, doing what they love, you know. So yeah, I know Micah has been collaborating with a, 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 one of my guests, Rachel Stewart Hawes. Yes. Who I had on back in 2019. She is an astrologer, but she's also an incredible painter. And I know they've been trading paintings back and forth. Well, Rachel will do. She does these these girls that uh, she kind of that are kind of repeated throughout her work. And Micah would paint on tattoos and do some of the background work. Just really fabulous stuff. And they recently had a show in New Orleans, and I met Micah down there. Stayed with Albert, you know, and um, they sold out. They sold all their paintings. I think there was one or two left, maybe, but, you know, they, they sold them all, the collaborated pieces. Oh, that's excellent. I wish I have had one. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I do have a couple of Micah's uh, work uh, before he became a tattooist when he was a painter, uh, solely a painter. Um, so he wasn't as, as heavily into tattoo at the time. His, his style has changed from the time that I, I got the piece that is uh, in my house to what he does today, because now it's more... Uh, you can tell the the influence that tattooing has made in his life. Oh, definitely, yeah. It's 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 he's grown a lot, you know. But it, his style has totally changed. Why don't you tell us a little bit more a little bit more about your uh, nonprofit that you have now? It's new. Uh, I, I had been volunteering and working with a local um, civil rights nonprofit, and the one. Th thing my partner and I realized and saw the most of is funding and there's such a lack of it for that that speciality and so that's what we've done we've created a nonprofit to help people that are doing uh, civil rights projects to get funded and so that includes some grant writing and stuff like that when I was with the, the original one I worked with the city and helped wrote the grant that will re, uh, take the Galilee Baptist Church and turn it into a civil rights museum owned by the city. So that's when we saw that there needs to be some outside private funds going into that. And we've, we've, we've talked to several people outside this, you know, this area to get them to come in and help with funding. Yeah, the Galilee Baptist Church was a place where Dr. Martin Luther King spoke. 
Right. And it was Dr. C.O. Simpkins who brought him here to speak. And there's a, the speech he did is online. It's uh, actually a precursor to I Have a Dream speech, and he had done it here. When he got to Washington and did the speech there, uh, he had to submit his speech to um, powers that be and so that they could approve it. But once he got behind the podium, he had started that speech, but then he just kind of brushed it away and went with the I Have a Dream speech he did in Shreveport for the first time. So there's a lot of history here, and, and that's just one story. There's just so much history here that comes back to Shreveport, you know, as, as, as much as Birmingham, Alabama, or any of the pl other places. Do you know how far along they are in the restoration, if they started that yet? They have started working on the outside because uh, it needs, the foundation needs to be um, fixed. They've got received $2 million from the parks, um, the Federal Park Department, and that's the grant that I worked on the first one. I, did, I wrote the narratives, and so um, the, the Parks Departments came back and said, we really want to help you with this. Submit again next year. So the city submitted again. So they have about $2 million now to just stabilize the building. And from there, they'll go in and start doing bids to uh, do the interior. But Misha Farrell is the one who received the bid to start the uh, stabilization. Yeah, she's a great architect. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Debbie, I, I want to thank you for all the activism that you have done throughout <laughs> the years. You have really... Uh, been beneficial to this area and it's you know it's something that i know you could be proud of i'm proud for you and i was thank very you. excited to have you on my show uh and and really I, I can't thank you enough for for the work that you've done and continue to oh, do thank you. well you were there with me for a lot of it so thank you yeah you're a great <laughs> friend and I, i'm very you know I'm, your friendship that i treasure and i yeah. always will you know, think of you as a close friend, uh, although right. we've kind of drifted a little bit. And we don't see each other a whole lot, mainly because I'm pretty much a recluse. But Yeah, I, I can't drag you along with me anymore like I used to. I lost my mojo. Hi, my name's Dawn Moltra. I'm from Starks River, Vermont. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, I wanted to talk a little about, bit about a life-changing event that I've had. I started out um, when I was younger modeling and I really enjoyed that and then I put it to a halt because I had kids so I didn't get too far in my modeling I did it some for a while for a couple years and then I had kids and wanted to do the home life and have a family and raise my kids and I enjoyed that and I didn't mind you know putting my my dreams on hold and I got older and I decided that I wanted to kind of start doing it a little more. And then I found out I was sick. Um, I had pancreatitis four times and they had to take out my gallbladder, hoping it would cause the problem from the pancreatitis. I went a few years without having any problems. And they told me I could eat pretty much whatever I wanted, that it wouldn't affect me as long as, you know, my stomach could handle it. So, you know, I ate like the typical American greasy, fatty foods, chocolate. I love chocolate. I have a hard time staying away from that one. And I ended up having 
a problem with my liver digesting food because my gallbladder wasn't there to help it, so it was taking a lot of strain. So I was put on pills to help digest food for my liver. And probably a few months after that, I ended up getting chronic pancreatitis. And my pancreas was having trouble digesting food. And my lipase was up to 480. So I got put on medication to help my pancreas digest food. So I was put on a really strict diet, no heavy foods, healthy foods, you know, and I don't drink. So that's never been an issue. So they're still trying to figure out what has caused the pancreatitis. I still see specialists and they're kind of stumped. They said pretty much, you know, they give me about seven years to live and it gave me a big perspective on what I want to do and how far I want to trudge forward in my life and live out my dreams. I mean, I gave gave up my dreams, like I said, a long time ago to raise my family and I'll never I'll never regret that. I love my family. I love my kids and I'm glad I lived my life the way I did. But now I'd like to take me time and grow, learn, make new friends and just do a lot of a lot of stuff that I'm doing now. Is is the pancreatitis is that linked to cancer perhaps? Um, well, they did test for cancer and so far um I don't have cancer in my pancreatitis, but it doesn't mean that um my pancreas won't develop it. Is there any hope other than just being told well you've got seven years to live, make the best of your life now that you can? Do you have something to hope for? Well, I had one specialist said that they could go in through my down through my throat into my pancreas with like a measuring Doppler and measure the sphincter muscle of the pancreas to see if it's opening and closing properly. And that if it was having a malfunction, if it did, they would cut off that part of the pancreas, but it wouldn't cure me. It would just help, um, help me some but um, I have another specialist that was going to do the procedure said that he didn't think it was necessary. So they're kind of clashing heads at the moment. So because it is an invasive procedure and a lot can go wrong with it. So they were very hesitant to do that procedure. So pretty much I'm just at a standstill trying to eat light. I drink a lot and I'm not really sure what's going to happen next. Well, what what is your diet like now and you you mean when you say drink a lot you mean water yeah i drink a lot of water i try and drink a lot of healthy drinks um like slim fast because it has a lot of vitamins so my body's not not diminished of the vitamins that i need um i eat a lot of vegetables i eat a lot of fruit i can't eat bread or potatoes or chocolate, all those make me sick almost instantly. They're too heavy food. They're very hard. Dairy is really hard to digest for the for the body. So I have to eat a lot of things that are just easy to digest. Are you in any kind of pain? I am. If I eat something I'm not supposed to eat, yes, I am I have a lot of pain. <laughs> but as long as you're managing managing your, your food intake, you're you're pretty much okay. There's no uh, peripheral 
pain from that? No. I mean, the less I eat, the better I feel. But I think the hardest part is I've always loved to cook and I love food. Yeah, and I'm at, you have a family to take care of, so that's not something you can get away from. Not really. Not when I, I mean, like I said, I cook. It's just more or less it, I've tried to figure out how to take healthy foods and make them taste phenomenal. There may be a book in that. Well, there's a lot of healthy foods out there that you that I make, but I mean, healthy foods, boy, they're really expensive and they taste horrible. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. You mentioned all the, the things you mentioned you can't have are the things I'm, you know, I'm, I, I struggle with when I was on the keto diet, which you can't have bread and potatoes, no starches and things like that. And that was difficult. And that sounds similar to what the diet that you're probably going through, maybe even more stressful because you can't have a lot of fat, can you? Right. Well, if you take something like uh, quinoa and you grate carrots up in a pan and put in just some garlic, pepper and maple syrup, I'm from Vermont, so maple syrup goes into things. It's a good um, sugar substance for me that doesn't make me sick that I can cook with. And it tastes like Chinese. It's phenomenal. And it's healthy. I've thought about many times trying to find a holistic doctor because I heard that they do wondrous things. And that was something that might be an idea if I can't have a solution any other way. When the doctor gave you seven years, how long ago was that? Have you are you close to that? In, I mean, do, do you feel like you have an end in sight, or or do you feel like pretty much that I'm managing this? So uh, that seven years was really just a ballpark figure. Um, I'm going to beat that. No, and so you know, I'm sure you have a positive outlook to to help you get through this. But when was that first diagnosis? When they said you have seven years and um, it was about a year ago, and I think I cried off and on for two weeks and wrote all this stuff down, and then I was like, you know, it's nothing to cry about. You know, people get older, they get sick. You know, we all have to face the fact that we're all going to pass away at some point in life, and, you know, when you look at how much time you actually have, you think, wow, you know, what do I want to do in that time? What do I want to accomplish? I mean, I'm trying to do as many movies, TV shows, runway shows, as much as I possibly can. I have a portfolio that I've put in um, all my jobs that I've done. So when my kids open that up down the road, when I'm gone, they can look and say, okay, mom was in orange is the new black. Which episode was she in? Let's find her. So they'll have to watch all of them and say, okay, where's mom? So were you in the Orange is the New Black? Yes, I was. Oh, how exciting. Okay, well, let's, let's get into your acting and your, your modeling career. Uh, so you said you started modeling when you were a lot younger. Is yeah. that something you're continuing to do or something you're wanting to continue? That's actually something I'm working on right now. I've been modeling for a while. I've done modeling for different companies for different things. I've done modeling for set in New York City where it's all charity based and their proceeds go to helping the homeless and ending child trafficking. 
So I love working for them. I go work for them as much as I can because they're, like I said, one of my favorites. And I do hair tutorial runways where I have to go down and they do your hair and you have to run the walkway, uh, walk the runway while other girls sit there and they work on doing their hair. So that's kind of a fun kind of runway, which I really enjoy. And then there's another kind of runway that I do where it's more of a competition or it's a, you are showing and presenting a new clothing line. So there's, there's different ones and I'm in a competition runway too. So there's, there's different kinds of runways that I do. Okay. So when you say you're in a composite, uh, competition runway what does that mean well right now i am in a competition runway in august in las vegas and it's basically an international so it's models from all around the world that are going to be walking the runway and competing to um for the win so what kind of uh prizes do they have for things like that um, well, they have um, Shimmer Magazine is helping promote this, so they would have the models in that. I'm working for the same company in August doing the runway that I'm actually doing something with right now that I am doing a competition for the same company online. And it is, we repost every single day a picture and we go by votes so people would go into the facebook onto the international modeling page click on that and then scroll down and follow and like the modeling company and once they do that if they follow and like whoever they choose who's in the competition um the winner of that actually gets their picture in Las Vegas on a billboard with their name in the modeling agency and four pages in Shimmer Magazine. Let's talk about your acting career now. When did that start? How far back did that go? I started acting when I was young also, um, the same, about the same time I was modeling. And then I took a break from that and started back up again a couple years ago. And I did a couple movies some shows. I did HBO series Succession Argetess over in Lake Placid I think was my favorite. I loved working with Matthew McFadden. He is awesome. Super nice guy. Great personality. Just all around fun. Um, I loved, I drove over there every day. It was nice because it was close. It was only a two hour drive. So I had a lot of fun working on that one. I, I enjoy doing the movies and the TV shows. I think it's fantastic. It's fun meeting new people. And, you know, I talk with everybody there. It doesn't matter if they're stagehands, if they're cooks, if they're hairdressers, or if they're stars. I mean, everyone is there to do a job. And, you know, I try and treat everybody equally. And I, I enjoy talking to everybody from everywhere. You mentioned that you were in Orange is the New Black. Tell us that story. Oh, gosh. That one was really fun. I actually had to cut my hair really short so I could look like a dyke. And I went down there, and it was great. 
it was freezing cold, it was snowing, it was sleeting, and it was at the prison. And the prison had no heat, so it was really, really, really cold. We had these prison uniforms with these flimsy little shoes, and everybody was just standing around. It was so cold, but it was so fun to be there. And this going in and out of the prison, and the they had a football game going, and then they had a cafeteria scene, and it was just. I think that was my favorite one was going the, the it was like the coldest day ever. And when I left, it was so cold outside trying to find a Lyft driver was absolutely insane. I had three Lyft drivers cancel when I tried to leave because they were afraid to go over there to the prison. So it's, it's like, still, still an active prison. Um, no, actually, they switched it over and made it into um, a movie set, but it's not completely done yet because it's really big. So they're still working on it, but it it was an active prison years ago. But trying to get people to go over to it to pick me up was just crazy. It took me like 45 minutes. I was completely drenched. I was soaked when I left there. Oh, I can imagine hearing that you're picking someone up at the prison and not knowing that it's no longer uh, an active prison that would make you think twice yep it did it was kind of comical i mean i look back on it and i laugh i mean i wasn't upset but it was it was definitely cold so what episode was it i think it was episode eight i'd have to look it's in my books i've done so many different things well tell us i'm just curious because i love oranges the new black and a lot of people do Tell us a little bit more about that experience, about your the lines you had and uh, your interaction with other actors in the movie, in the uh, TV series. Uh, just a little bit. Just give us uh, a teaser of what, what you went through. Um. Well, when I had to go up to the cafeteria with her, at the be- I was at the beginning of the line and I was kind of the, uh, the head girl who was kind of I was kind of protecting the other girls there I was like the head mean bitch of the 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 the, the dykes there and I had to walk down to the table and sit down and I had to talk to the other girls they were looking at like this Martha Stewart type of catalog which was really funny and I was supposed to be all tough and they were sissies so I ended up telling them I wasn't interested and I got mad at them and I got up and walked away from them and then there were these three black girls that I guess I had a thing against blacks. They said I was angry with them and I had to get mad at them and tell them off. And we almost got into a huge fight. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was fun. It was really fun. So you played a tough guy or a tough gal. Yeah, I did. I had a really, really fun time. I had really, really long hair and I had cut it like super short. So would you consider that role as your favorite so far or do you have one that you like even more i think that's my favorite one what do you have in store are there any new projects coming out that you like to go ahead and talk about um right now i'm working on a book called magnetism and it's about a girl who was born with two souls and only one physical form 
And when she turns 13, her soul emerges into her body of the other girl. And they get this immense magnetism that drains power from any electronics. And she tries to figure out how to use the power that she's harnessed.